0: It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans, after all, it's only pressure. You got this, Adidas. Let's take this outside with Marianne Iveson. The podcast where she speaks to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about why they connect with nature.
1: I'm so happy to welcome back my first guest ever, professional explorer and national best-selling author Adam Schultz. Adam's new book comes out on October 3rd called Where the Falcon Flies, a 3,400-kilometer odyssey from my doorstep to the Arctic. We're just going to jump right in. Please welcome back Adam Schultz. Adam Schultz, welcome back to Let's Take This Outside. How are you?
0: I'm very well. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back.
1: You were my first guest, and you are my most streamed episode. So I feel like this is going to be a, a big success. So uh, high stakes here, Adam. High stakes.
0: Well, I'm honored to hear that I was the first guest and that I have the uh, the highest stream number. So thank you. I'll try to I'll try to keep that going that streak.
1: I feel like we could talk about nature forever, but the main reason I wanted to have you back was, first of all, you're like an epic Canadian adventurer, but you have a new book coming out on October 3rd, Where the Falcon Flies, a 3,400-kilometer odyssey from my doorstep to the Arctic. That's quite the title. Tell me about the bird that started this whole thing. It was a peregrine falcon, right?
0: That's true, I mean, partly, I just try to come up with catchy titles for books, <laughs> so people uh, when they're just randomly walking by a bookstore in a mall or anywhere else or browsing online, they see a book and they say oh that that looks catchy maybe i'll i'll maybe I'll read through the description on the jacket of the book and hopefully want to buy it i mean it's it's funny I'll get to the expedition in a second, but i I write uh, expeditions nonfiction true, true adventure stories, and I think a lot of the genre is a little too dry. And um, I've always tried to put a little extra thought into coming up with a creative title for that reason, um, to hopefully spark people's interest. But Where the Falcon Flies, the title reflects the inspiration for my journey. It was a couple uh, years ago, I was just literally in our house in Norfolk County, which is in Southern Ontario, right on Lake Erie near Long Point, which is, if you're not familiar with the area, Sort of uh, about uh, thirty minutes, I would say, west of Port Dover, as if you were driving to Tilsonburg. And I was—it was one April morning. I was looking out our, our front window um, across the cornfield, which is on the other side of the road from our house. And it was, this was April, so the corn hadn't been planted yet. It was just a barren field. And I often do this with a cup of green tea, looking out the window and just seeing what kind of wildlife are about, sometimes with white-tailed deer or coyotes or fox, and very often birds, uh, because this area of Southern Ontario is kind of unofficially known as the birding capital of Canada, if not North America. It's an amazing area to spot hundreds of different species of birds that pass through here every spring um, as part of their migration north, is sometimes as far north as the Arctic. And that's kind of what I was doing when I happened to see a bird fly across the cornfield. And I recognized it immediately. I mean, I knew right off the bat, that's a peregrine falcon. And if you've seen a peregrine falcon, it's not likely something you would ever forget. I mean, they're one of the most majestic birds in the world. They have the distinction of being the fastest, not just bird, but the fastest animal in the world. They're faster than even a cheetah. Uh, they can re- reach speeds of over 300 kilometers an hour. And they're not that big a bird. They're about the size of a crow. Uh, but what makes them so distinctive is their wingspan. Uh, their wings look like a little too large for their bodies, which helps them fly so so fast. And I recognized it as peregrine falcon uh, immediately because i had seen many peregrine falcons on my past adventures canoeing in the Arctic. In fact, in 2017, when I did my almost 4,000 kilometer solo journey alone across the Arctic by canoe, I'd seen a dozens of peregrine falcons nesting on cliffs along Arctic lakes. Um, that's one of the things the falcons favor when they look for nesting sites. They will migrate thousands of kilometers from southern Canada or even further south, sometimes as far away as Central America, uh, to the Arctic, where they find these spectacular sheer cliffs in they'll. Make their nest, which isn't much of a nest, but they'll lay their eggs anyways along just sort of a narrow ledge high off the ground or off the water on these cliffs. So I'd seen these falcons up in the Arctic. And in that moment, looking out my front porch window, um, I felt like instantly transported back to the Arctic. And this idea came to me spontaneously, which is hey, why not get my backpack and my canoe and set off from my doorstep to the Arctic? You know, I could follow that falcon theoretically. Right from our front yard, thousands of kilometers north to the Arctic. So that was the idea I hit upon, and it's what I ended up doing. Setting off right from our front yard, portaging my canoe only a short distance down to uh, Lake Erie, and then from Long Point, I canoed and hiked 3,400 kilometers north to Ungava Bay uh, in the eastern Arctic near the Tornat Mountains where many falcons go on their migrations so that was the the journey and that's how i came up with the title for the book
1: i'm actually from southern ontario it's actually called tilbury it's probably it's probably a couple hours further south on the 401 or west on the 401 but my dad is just obsessed with all the birds that come in our in our front lawn. <laughs> and it's funny cuz like when i was younger i didn't um i didn't care as much but now that i you know i'm in my mid 30s now i would love to know your thoughts i think you've probably liked birds way longer than the average human but i think there comes a time in your life if you like spending time outside where you're like i'm a birder now i'm, I'm a bird watcher i feel like it happens like like a slow ascent into like bird love. But like, do you you know when that thing happens when you're like, I watch birds for fun now? Is there like a point in your life? Is it like 35, 40, where that happens where most people are like, I love to watch birds?
0: I think it's probably more like 84 (laughs) for the average person. (laughs) I think the average bird watcher is probably quite old, at least compared to other pastimes or sports, if you want to call it a sport. I once I remember years ago I read an article and it claimed that bird watching was the fastest growing sport in North America, which I thought was kind of funny that bird watching was referred to as a sport. I think conventionally, when we think of someone watching birds, you sort of picture an old person in a park feeding the ducks or something like that. Um uh, and I, I've been lucky enough that I've been a guest speaker at many nature clubs all over Ontario and Canada. And I would say the average age in a nature club is like 79, 80-ish. Um but I don't think that it's i mean obviously if you get into the birding community and and I am actually pretty active in the birding community, there are a lot of young people who are who are very passionate birders who are in their twenties or even teenagers or even kids um so it's definitely possible for people to get into bird watching at a young age i mean i I'm like you in my mid thirties and I've always been fascinated by birds. Uh, Even when I was a kid or a teenager, I liked them. We used to have a a backyard bird feeder and there was forest all around our house. So we had a lot of interesting species um, come to the feeder. And I think for anyone who's, you know, your question is a good one, because I think for people who are into the outdoors, birds isn't maybe the first thing that draws them into it. It's probably, at least as far as wildlife goes, um, what some people call charismatic megafauna, which is just a fancy way of saying the big animals like wolves and bears and cougars and moose and caribou. Those are like the exciting ones that um, draw people in. But I think the more time you spend out in the wild, camping, canoeing, hiking, what have you, the more immersed you get into that world, the more your interest deepens and the more aware you become of all the wild things that are out there, not just the big animals, um, but birds as well, and then beyond birds. I mean, you talk to people who are like seriously into nature. Uh, I know people, some friends of mine, who are obsessed with like moths, and now they're into moth watching, and they get excited when they see it. They she's a new species of moth. Yeah. yeah, moths, moths, butterflies, bugs, ants, cool uh, insects, right? Um, and I think it doesn't end like flowers, mushrooms, trees, plants. It's all part of the the diversity that makes up the natural world. And that makes it such a fascinating thing to explore. And that's partly what's so exciting about it, right? You can start off getting excited about seeing a bear in the wild or seeing a wolf or caribou, and then it just endlessly expands from there, right? You can get into fish, birds, trees, mushrooms, rocks, what have you. I mean, the natural world, it's just such an amazing tapestry, of um, different things, different uh, living things. And it's fascinating to go deeper and deeper into that world.
1: And it's so fun to go hiking or spending time in nature with people who are obsessed with moths or moss, or uh, like my sister, for example, has always loved plants. And uh, she actually just got her horticulture degree and uh, diploma. And she, it's funny because now she has like this crazy wealth of knowledge. And we were, uh, she lives in Cochrane, Alberta, and we were spending some time in the Canadian Rockies. And it's funny because like the Canadian Rockies, as you know, are just vast and beautiful and awe-inspiring. And we're out in nature and going for a hike. And, you know, the rest of us are looking out at the vistas and my sister is squatting, looking at the moss on the rock, not looking at the vistas, right? Do you like, I'm assuming you're that kind of person.
0: Yes, I think I could definitely relate to your sister and get along with her. I mean, I love the vistas too. Don't get me wrong. I would totally stop and take in the breathtaking panorama from the top of a mountain. But yeah, I like the little details too. I mean, I've, I'm always stopping to look at the little tiny uh, lichens, moss, mushrooms, little plants. Uh, I'm fascinated by that world uh, right beneath our feet as well. And I think it's just about sort of embracing the the big picture, like the mural Of everything that's out there in the wild and all those little things that go to make it up what it is. And when I write my books, um, like this new one, Where the Falcon Flies, but my other books as well, I try to pay attention to those details so that when I'm describing, say, a campsite that I decide to spend the night at after traveling for hours and hours, I try to describe it, right? I don't just say, I put my tent up under a a tree. I'll try to be more specific and say, you know, there was this, uh, there was this great old black spruce and it was all twisted and it's its branches were covered in hanging lichens that made it look almost like cobwebs hanging down from the branches um, so I try to like paint the scene so as as far as I can to put the reader of the book um, in my shoes so that they can sort of imagine better um, what it's like and I think describing those kind of details the lichens the mushrooms the plants paying attention to the the little things, not just the breathtaking vistas really helps do that.
1: Is it true that COVID put this on hold for you, like this expedition? Is that how the timing went for that? And then how did you decide to pursue it when it was the right time? Like, so can you kind of give me a little bit of a timeline on how this kind of played out?
0: Yes, that's correct. So when I saw the Falcon from my front porch window there, that was April, 2020. And well, it was either uh-huh. late March or early April 2020, which if people remember their dates, that was right when the COVID pandemic uh, was declared. And I think it was, well, I don't remember exactly when the WHO, the World Health Organization, officially declared it a pandemic. But I think it was, I just remember the mid-March or so was when like, lockdowns were Yeah, incident. it was March. Yes. Yeah, so that put a wrench in my plans. And because of all the resulting restrictions... I just put the idea out of my mind and thought, oh, you know, it was a brilliant idea I had of following that fault into the Arctic, but COVID restrictions have put a lot of <laughs> roadblocks in my path, so I didn't end up going. And then two years passed, and I ended up becoming a parent. I became a father uh, with the birth of my son Thomas in 2021. Congratulations! Thank you. And I felt that because I'd become a new parent, I was not gonna do any more long journeys, at least not for the foreseeable future like I'd done in the past, that would involve going away for three or four months or even longer out in the wild in my canoe uh, for thousands of kilometers. I thought that that was not in the cards for the foreseeable future, but just this uh, last spring, 2022, I was watching the birds migrate again in April, um, that old feeling of adventure and wanderlust kindled up inside of me. And it was actually my wife, Alexandria. Uh, she was the one who pushed me to do it. She said, You know, you should go. You should set off after the Falcon, or else you'll be haunted by regret that you never <laughs> did. And it's easier to do it now um, when our son Thomas is still very little than in a couple of years when <laughs> he's going to be talking and much more active. Uh, you'll never go then. And in hindsight, uh, that was very wise because I don't think I could have done a journey now in this circumstances because it was a very long journey. 3,400 kilometers took almost 100 days to complete. But she pushed me out the door practically. And I uh, once I set off, once I got into the lake, I didn't look back. And I, I'm glad that I did it. And the result is this new book, Where the Falcon Flies.
1: I have a couple of questions with that. Uh, first of all, you clearly married the right woman, which I'm sure you already knew. But what's it what's it like to go on these adventures and adventure now, knowing that you have an offspring and that you have a that you have a son? Is it different? Are you like what? What are the feelings like?
0: Quite a few people who know me have asked me that, and I feel like the safe answer would be like, "Oh, it's changed everything. Now I'm I'm much more cautious and careful." In the wilderness, because, you know, I I have a family back home and I can't take any risks. However, if I'm being 100% honest, I feel like that is not, strictly speaking, the case. (laughs) And I thought about this when I was doing my 3,400 kilometer journey from Lake Erie to the Arctic, running rapids and dealing with big storms, gale force winds, lightning and all the other hazards that come with the journey of that length. And I really don't think it's changed me at all in terms of the actual expedition. Partly, I think that's because I was actually always, appearances to the contrary, I was always very cautious. Um, I always tried to err on the side of caution when it came to scouting whitewater rapids or paddling across a very big body of water, dealing with whitecaps or um, where I put my tent in terms of lightning storms, you know, always seeking out the low lying ground. So I think I was always cautious and I don't think it's really changed that much. But I think the other reality is, it might shock some people to hear this, but if you do a journey in the wilderness and you're trying to cover thousands of kilometers, um, just as a matter of practical necessity, some of the time you you kinda have to take some risk. Otherwise you should never have left home in the first place, uh, because you simply won't complete a journey otherwise, right? It's impossible not to uh not to take some risk, obviously. Otherwise we we wouldn't go out and adventure in the first place. And I think partly that's what it means to be human um, is to take risks and travel, wander, do these adventures. So I don't think it's changed me that much in terms of my actual expeditions. Of course, it's changed my life at home. And I mean, I'm extremely grateful and happy to be a parent now and, and to have uh, my son, Thomas, who is the best. And uh, I very much enjoy having him around. Where it has changed the experience of the actual uh, adventures and journeys is it it, it has introduced a homesickness into the equation which wasn't necessarily there before on any of my past adventures like my 4,000 kilometer journey alone across the Arctic um, so that that is different not necessarily the physical reality of planning a trip and then carrying it out but just the fact that when I'm out there there's a part of my heartstrings that are being tugged because I know back home um, is my son and I'm missing him and always thinking about him. So that's new. That is different. Um, And that certainly makes it more challenging from a sort of mental perspective in terms of doing these journeys and adventures. But, I mean, there's an upside. As my wife, Alexandria, says, absence makes the heart grow fonder. And I think that that is certainly true. Uh, If you have to be away from family, it just makes you appreciate them all the more. And when you're reunited, it makes those moments all the more special so that you're actually making the most of the time uh, you have together. So I think there's hard parts to it, but there are rewards as well. So I think I'm pretty lucky in that regard.
1: Adam, all I can picture right now, and correct me if I'm wrong, but all I can picture is the three of you in a canoe, and Thomas has his little tiny little vest on the, the what is it, a life preserver? What is it called?
0: <laughs> life jacket. <laughs> life preserver, yes. Life jacket, yeah.
1: thank you. <laughs> like all I can imagine is the three of you in a canoe, and Thomas in his little little jacket. <laughs> Just, like, has that happened yet? Or is that something that will probably happen?
0: Oh, uh, no, that hasn't happened yet. Well, there's going to be four of us soon, actually. Because <laughs> uh, my wife is expecting in just a few days. So there'll be four of us this summer. But that So that, by the time
1: this comes out, you'll have four. There'll be four of you. By the time this comes out in September, yes, yeah.
0: Yes, yeah, there'll be four of us. <laughs> no, I haven't taken them canoeing yet, but we spend a lot of time together in the woods. We're very lucky that we have a forest all around our house. So pretty much... walk out the front door and there's a forest right there. And my son, he loves exploring the woods. It's like his favorite place to be. I mean, I think it's probably true of every kid. Uh, If they have the opportunity to go in the woods, they will. (laughs) And he enjoys that very much. So we're always out in the forest already together. And I'll probably take him in a canoe this summer. But I mean, ironically for myself, even though I may be best known today as a canoeist, um, I didn't really get seriously into canoeing until I was more like 12 or so. Uh, when I was younger, I was really just into the forest. And it was my love of the forest that came first. My love of canoeing only came much later on. I always thought of a canoe as simply a means to, to an end. It was a way of exploring the wild rather than something that I would do um, as an end in itself. So my first love was just going out into the woods. And I guess it's kind of like how I'm doing things with my son, Thomas, right now, We're just spending time in the forest and, you know, doing camping and that kind of stuff. And then later when he's a little bit older, I'll get him more into canoeing if he wants to. I mean, I'm not gonna force him if he wants to do something different with his life. That's perfectly fine. But I think, you know, little kids, it's a little bit harder for them to do canoeing. Of course, he can be a passenger, but to actually paddle and stuff, they'll have to be a little bit older. So we'll see how that goes this summer. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile
1: banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
0: Let's Take This Outside now has a newsletter. Keep up to date with outdoor news, events, and great discount codes and deals from our partners. Sign up today at letstakethisoutside.ca
1: other than the hard strings being pulled and the homesickness what are some of the big obstacles that showed up for you in this journey cuz you went from south to north in this journey so what are the big obstacles that showed up for you and how did you deal with them that were maybe different than than other journeys
0: well there was a whole ton of new obstacles i had never faced before on any previous adventure because of course the vast majority of the expeditions i do for the royal canadian geographical society are in extremely remote isolated places far from anywhere where I can go weeks or months without even seeing another human, where there's no trails, no paths, no designated campsites. You're just immersed in true wilderness. Whereas for the first half or more of this journey that I just finished, um, it was the complete opposite. I was traveling through southern Canada, passing by cities like Hamilton, Toronto, Kingston, Montreal, Quebec City. I mean, I was traveling through some of the most densely populated parts of Canada. So the set of challenges that came with that was totally different than what I'd faced in the past and uh, quite different for me. I mean, sometimes it was a matter of, oh, how how do I find somewhere to camp? I mean, this is a huge city. I've got a storm. And when you have a storm on the Great Lakes, um, that's not to be taken lightly. The Great Lakes can sink even ocean-going ships, so they can certainly do uh, a lot of damage to my little 15 foot canoe. So sometimes I'd have like huge white caps on Lake Erie or Lake Ontario pinning me on the shore and in the wilderness, that wouldn't be a problem because I would just, you know, make my camp and uh, wait it out until I can keep traveling. But on Lake Erie or Lake Ontario, what do you do if you're, what do you do if you're stormbound in Mississauga and the shoreline is just private property or somewhere you can't actually set up a tent? So I had to think strategically in terms of like, okay, I've got to paddle really hard. The weather is good. I've got fair wind. I don't care if it's 16 hours. (laughs) I'm just going nonstop paddling uh, as much as I can because there's not going to be another wild place where I can put up my tent and stop for like 75 kilometers or 80 kilometers or sometimes longer. So I had to come up with all sorts of interesting campsites and i i wound up in some very strange places i spent a night sleeping under the burlington skyway <laughs> which is a pretty busy major highway for people who aren't familiar with it and then later on in the journey when i got to montreal it was a similar scenario where darkness was coming on and there was no way to keep traveling in the dark sometimes on my route i did paddle into the night um, but i couldn't do that at montreal because the commercial Shipping traffic is so heavy there. It's one of Canada's busiest commercial ports. There's these giant freighters that are almost like a 1000 feet long, plus Coast Guard ships, passenger ferries, just a lot of heavy commercial traffic in the river that there was no way I could travel at night. It was just too dangerous. I'd get hit by a boat. And they would never even know that they ran me over because those freighters are like massive. They just sort of assume no one is stupid enough to go paddle a canoe right into a shipping lane. So I had to stop. But of course, where do you stop in Montreal? It's a city of over a million people. Um, So I spent a night camping underneath the Jacques Cartier Bridge in Montreal, which actually turned out to be quite a nice campsite. Once I moved some sheet metal out of the way, there was some barbed wire. (laughs) And I put up my tent down there, that was kind of relaxing. I had a nice view of the city just across the river. And I set off at dawn um, to continue. So there were a lot of challenges like that. Another major challenge was getting around Niagara Falls. I had to portage around Niagara Falls. I canoed the Niagara River, and I I had to avoid like the hydro intake, portage my canoe around Niagara Falls, try to avoid tourists (laughs) and other obstacles. And then relaunch my canoe below the Whirlpool Rapids and continue down the Niagara River. So there are a lot of challenges like that, dealing with hydro dams, barbed wire, private property, crowds of people. There was I had to do a portage in Montreal, and it was busy because my, the timing of my portage was right around like 5 o'clock, so everyone had just gotten off work. Montreal struck me as a very active city as far as cities go. There were like literally thousands of joggers, cyclists, walkers, pedestrians out. And I was just trying to weave through these crowds. People are thinking like, who is this guy? What is he doing? (laughs) Uh, Because at that point, I was already like close to four weeks into my journey. So I hadn't shaved in four weeks or showered or washed. And you can imagine what my appearance was like. So there were a lot of challenges like that on my way north.
1: Did anyone hand you money?
0: No, uh, but... I will say that, um, well, someone did give me Tim Hortons once, which was very nice. And another nice nice old lady in uh, Quebec uh, gave me some French onion soup, which I very much appreciated. In fact, I will say, in all honesty, everyone I crossed paths with on this journey, right from Long Point on Lake Erie all the way up to the Arctic coast, every stranger who I crossed paths with randomly showed me nothing but kindness and encouragement, which I thought was a wonderful idea rewarding aspect of my journey. I mean, I think nowadays, uh, people, it's very easy to get very cynical about the state of the world. But I found that, you know, getting back out with some good old fashioned travel is a wonderful cure for that cynicism. And that (laughs) the vast majority of people out there are actually pretty decent, kind individuals. And I mean, there are many examples that I talk about and discuss in the book. Uh, where I talk about, you know, the kindness shown to me by different people giving me permission to camp or or helping me out with portage when I had to get around various obstacles and cities. um, There were a lot of uh, really positive uplifting, uplifting examples I saw of the kindness of strangers on my journey.
1: What a wild different journey for you going from a densely populated city like Montreal, and then being in the Arctic again was there any part of you, like clearly you ran into some great strangers, but was there any part of you that maybe like resented humanity a little bit more seeing all the barbed wire and things in the way and, or do you just appreciate humans being part of nature and just accepting what that is?
0: No, I, as I said, I would, I found my journey a very rewarding experience in which I came away with much more positive outlook on the state of the world. And I, Uh, I kind of came away convinced that, you know, the vast majority of people from all walks of life are actually good, decent, kind people. And that if we, uh, the more we meet face to face, the better off we'll be that, you know, uh, I think it's just too easy with digital technology for people to become cynical. Now, that said, uh, from an environmental perspective, doing that journey through the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence River, I mean, it certainly gave me countless examples of the intense development pressure that we're putting on wild places in southern canada and indeed all over canada and that that's definitely a cost for alarm i mean uh from a practical perspective i can tell you that canoeing on the great lakes was made much more challenging uh, because of all the break walls and uh, the break walls if you have stormy weather big waves uh, when they hit a break wall which is like a concrete barrier it creates a ricochet effect almost like being in a wave pool at a water park And your canoe is now being hit from both directions. And some of these break walls, they can go on for miles and miles. So it made canoeing um, extremely challenging to say the least. And I had a lot of close calls and big adventurers battling storms and huge white caps on the Great Lakes and even on the St. Lawrence River um, as a result of those uh, human barriers or obstacles that have been created. But that's kind of a separate point um, from the environmental one or the conservation one that I wanted to make. I mean, yeah, this, the development pressure is really, really intense in Canada right now. We, I think they have the, the highest growth rate out of any developed nation in the world. And you could see that, I mean, firsthand. I saw that all along my journey, everywhere I went from Port Dover to Bowmanville to Kingston, um, Trois-Rivières. You would see green space being converted to uh, urban sprawl farms and wetlands and forests being cleared and developed, paved over, asphalt, concrete, steel, glass, all of these things. Uh, I mean, I would say at the same time, I found it an a uh, really enriching experience that I discovered that even in our biggest cities, you still have a lot of amazing natural gems. Um, for example, in Toronto, I spent two nights camping within the city of Toronto because I had no choice because of stormy weather or darkness. And uh, both times I was amazed because I didn't really know Toronto very well. I don't spend very much time there at all. I'm not from that area. But I was amazed to find green space, even in the heart of Toronto. Uh, The Toronto Islands, which are just offshore from downtown Toronto, are like a chain of 13 islands. And they're remarkably wild. They're only a kilometer from these giant skyscrapers. But they feel a world away. Um, This quiet little oasis of nature. That you can escape to, and some of those islands are uninhabited, so it's like a Robinson Crusoe experience camping on them. And then later on, when I was uh, I was stormbound in Scarborough, which is eastern Toronto, and I was amazed that for miles and miles of shoreline there, this is within the city limits of Toronto. It's completely undeveloped, untouched, um, just wild little cove after cove, remarkable green space, beautiful forests, lots of wild birds, nature existing right in the heart of the city there. And that was like a a huge um, lift to my spirits, wind in my sails to see all that, uh, those wild places. And I think that's like a really positive thing that we should definitely make a blueprint for the future to preserve more nature, not only in the north, but in the south, in the hearts of our biggest cities. Same with Montreal. It's remarkable how much protected green space there is around Montreal, including some islands in the St. Lawrence River which are like national wildlife refuges. So they haven't been developed at all, which is amazing and and very good. And if I had the power, if I was like theoretically prime minister for a day or something like that, that is what I would do. I would say, you know, we in Canada, we are in a very uh, special position that most of the world is not in where we still have these wild places and we need to decide right now um, what we're going to do with them for the future. We can follow the same path that virtually every other country in the world has followed. And pave them over. Or we can chart a different path where we say that these places are precious and irreplaceable. And you can't put a dollar sign on them. That we have to protect all of them. uh, Not only for future generations of Canadians, but indeed uh, for the whole world's sake. Uh, Because so many other places all over the world uh, no longer have these wild places. They've just disappeared or are disappearing at an alarming rate. And Canada is one of the few places that could still, theoretically, if the political will was there, protect wild places for the future. And, you know, when I say wild places, I'm not talking only about places right on the edge of cities like I was describing a moment ago. But what makes it so special is Canada still has truly vast wild places where you can roam for hundreds and hundreds of kilometers and never come across a single road, town, town or any any human made object at all and that's that's very special uh, there's not very many places where you can still say that's the case in the year 2023 but it's not inevitable it won't remain that way unless we decide to keep it that way there's incredible pressure on canada to develop those regions to open them up to natural resource extraction and uh, if we keep going down the road that we are eventually in the not too distant future it'll just be a distant memory that um, that was ever the case. And yeah, we'll still have parks, but those parks are fundamentally different. The ecology uh, is changed once it becomes a place that you've developed with networks of roads, trails, campgrounds, you put in wifi, you've built facilities, and now you have like a million or 2 million tourists. Just go to a popular park like Banff National Park or, or Bruce Peninsula National Park, and you can see uh, the impact on the ecology of that place is pretty intense. But yeah, I mean, that's what I saw in my journey, that there's still tremendous potential to protect green space all over the country. And I think that that's an exciting prospect. And it's one that I hope politicians in Canada will do a better job of stewarding in the decades ahead.
1: All I heard from that was Adam Schultz for prime minister. And that was your (laughs) official statement. To run. So, By the way, you would have to learn how to use Twitter, which I feel like you'd probably hate that. Well,
0: there, Maybe it's you know. over. My, my political candidacy has sunk before it even began.
1: <laughs> you kind of answered some of my questions I was going to ask anyway. But as we uh, finish up this interview, how does this book, how does this journey differ most from your other journeys? What can people expect when it comes out in October?
0: Well, uh, in terms of the book, I tried to use an approach – somewhat similar to my other books, but I wanted it to be more than just my personal adventure story. Yes, there's all sorts of hot, heart-stopping moments where I'm dealing with polar bears or dealing with huge whitewater rapids or lightning storms, trying not to get run over by a commercial freighter. But I wanted to add to the book um, deeper context. So I tried to weave into my personal journey lots of history. And that was something that I enjoyed observing as I was traveling by canoe. I mean, there's something about slowing things down that really lets you see the landscape and appreciate the stories connected with it. So all through the book, I've put in a lot of the heavy historical context of all the places I passed through and tried to weave into some of the most interesting and fascinating historical anecdotes from these areas, from the south to the north, you know, getting deep into the history, going back in time centuries, and just talking about the things I saw. Because I think all around us, almost hidden in plain sight, are some really incredible forgotten stories from the past. I mean, you can see ruins or relics of old fur trade posts and, and different things all over the place. And every t- every time I would come across one unexpectedly, I would sort of pause my journey and just put on my archaeologist hat or my historian's hat and investigate it a little bit. And then I wanted to share some of that story in the book as well. So there's a lot of history uh, woven into the adventure part of the book to sort of give it this deeper narrative, I hope.
1: Where the Falcon Flies, a 3400 kilometer odyssey from my doorstep to the Arctic coming out October 3rd. You can technically order pre-sale now. Any other details on how to get the book? Obviously, probably everywhere you can get books, but more details on that, please and thank you.
0: Oh yeah, Where the Falcon Flies, you can pre-order it right now on Amazon, Indigo, Chapters, Kohl's, independent bookstores, anywhere books are sold. It's available in all formats, audio, ebook. Hardcover, etc. So you can find it there and in, in stores on October third.
1: Do you voice the audiobook? Yes, I do. Oh, cool! You're going to be great at that, <laughs> Adam Schultz. Uh, congratulations on the new book, The Children. It's been really great to catch up with you, and thanks again for stopping by.
0: Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more, let's take this outside. Go to let's take this outside.ca. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.